Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this episode of Most Notorious, a nightmarish fire consumes the ocean monarch an emigrant ship bound for America in August of 1848. People were burning to the extent that they had um, a kind of human gravy going over the deck of the ship because it was literally cooking them where they stood. You know, the, the sheer heat coming up through the, the wooden deck for people like actually up in the fresh air on top deck, the heat was such that their feet were cooking. Their feet were sticking to the boards. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you once again for joining me. I am so excited to have Jill Hoffs back to the show. She was last heard on Most Notorious in August of 2021 and enthralled us with the story of the ill-fated voyage of the William and Mary. She shared some details at the end of that episode about another book she thought we'd like, called The Lost Story of the Ocean Monarch, Fire, Family, and Fidelity. Well, I'm happy to announce she is here to talk about that very book. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I'm so excited. It was great fun last time. It was, yes. So you open this book with the line, The Summer of 1848 was a time of superstition and science, desperation and disease. What do you mean by that? Well, it felt, at least from this point of view, from, you know, 21st century, like there was quite a clear dawning of a new age happening, but it wasn't quite there yet. So you had people talking in the British newspapers about um, you know this wonderful thing called ether that could mean taking your teeth out didn't cause you pain. About photography, you know the the very early stages of it. But then you've also got bits about. I think it was an adulterer was tarred and feathered, and somebody taking bits of 
well, a hanged person's corpse as a kind of a kind of folk remedy, and so it was this real mixture and people talking about witches, but in the same newspaper you'd find you know, talk of science and industry and greater communication. It it felt like the world was just starting to connect in ways that that we'd be more familiar with now. It's always been connected. We we do know that, but it felt like the technology was advancing, the will was there, and bits were kind of joining up. So a, a quick refresher on our last episode together, the shipwreck of, of the William and Mary. There were lots of people leaving England and Ireland and other European countries in the late 1840s and early 1850s for, for numerous reasons. The William and Mary was one of the ships transporting people to their new lives. Um, this one was bound for New Orleans. It was a terrible trip, um, plagued with disease, hunger, murder, and ultimately a shipwreck in the Bahamas in 1853. Now, the Ocean Monarch, the subject of today's episode, also left the port of Liverpool, uh, filled with emigrants bound for the United States. What kind of ship was the Ocean Monarch, and what city was it headed to? She was a wooden vessel, big sailing ship, but at that time, um, you know, sailing ships were very much still in use for the crossing between uh, Britain and the US. But steamships were becoming more and more popular. They were more dependable. They were more likely to get there in time, whereas sailing ships were obviously very dependent on the, the weather conditions. And especially, I believe they were, they were even slower going eastwards than they were westwards. But um, I could quite easily have got that mixed up. They were heading for Boston. And realistically, at the time, there was no reason to suspect they wouldn't get there. You know, it was a decent ship. It was a good captain, a decent captain with a decent crew. It was well stocked, well provisioned, well handled. The, you know, the people who were going on board, yeah, there's risks involved with travel. And I think we covered that in some pretty horrible detail last time. But if you could have a fairly safe bet for making this journey, it would have been on the Ocean Monarch. With the William and Mary, the captain was just the most dodgy character. Um, he was actively cruel, actively horrible, even by the standards of the time. He was just a, a, a vile specimen. And his crew were a bit of a mixed bunch. Some of them might have been all right if they'd had a different captain. Whoever the captain is influences very much the, the, the tone of the voyage, the tone of the crew. Um, it all feeds down. If, for example, you had a captain as awful as Stinson, who sounds like he was egotistical and inept, paired with a good first mate, someone who 
was practically minded, but also um, decent and caring um, and respectful to the other people on board, then that wouldn't necessarily mesh well. And it may not end well for for the first mate. You know, it's either, you know, ship up or shape out. Sorry, shape up or ship out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, oh, that, that's okay. So this ship, the Ocean Monarch, had a really great captain. He he was, you know, so experienced. He was He was used to whatever would be thrown at him. And his first mate was a lovely, lovely man. And it it should have worked out. It should have been a prosperous, healthy voyage. Whereas with Stinson, he was a wannabe mass murderer before he even stepped on board, by the sounds of it. Right, right. So this ship was better equipped to carry passengers, right? Yes, it was. And... Whereas the the William and Mary, which was a couple of years later, you know they'd really scrimped on provisions, and the provisions that they did have were very uh, questionable quality. The Ocean Monarch it actually had livestock on board, um, which which was quite common if you had um, a passenger ship. Um, they had pens of cows and sheep on the upper deck, which it wasn't just, um, shall we say, for companionship. I mean, I know I, for one, am very much an animal lover, so I would prefer to be travelling with my pets or livestock. These were for milk, for meat, for, well, for keeping people healthy, because if you're travelling for weeks on end, all you have is things that have been preserved, um, whether that's an alcohol or vinegar or brine or salt. Fresh water is an issue. And we we discussed the, the horrible water that could be found on ships at that time sometimes, um, last time. But this way you would have fresh, nourishing food available to you, come what may throughout the voyage and it would have so much more vitamins and minerals it would make it far more likely that you would survive that voyage even if um, the livestock didn't. Who are some of the more notable passengers on this voyage? Well there was um, a noted miniaturist Nathaniel Southworth Um, he'd been travelling around Europe creating beautiful but very very small pieces of work he had wealthy benefactors he was very successful and it sounds like the 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 fresh air and variety of foods that he was having suited him well he was coming back to america with several years worth of work and unfortunately it didn't get there in the end but you can find a lot of his work on google images and the like if you look up his name it's it's absolutely exquisite and there was a jeweler 
a, a gentleman named James Fellows on board, correct? Yeah, he was he, he was very personable. He wrote a really excellent memoir of his time, both on the ship and off it. And he was in first class. He was in the the cabin, and um, he was actually one of he was actually among the first people to to raise the alarm to notice something was amiss. One of the interesting facts is is that there were a number of items on board that were being delivered to American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yes, including a rocking horse, if I remember right. They were being sent back for, I think it was his friend's children. One of the things that Captain Murdoch did, once everyone had boarded, he instructed passengers on safety. Yes, he was very safety conscious. In line with the thinking of the time, there were fires allowed on board on this wooden vessel but in specific areas in um cooking areas which would be maybe like a a box lined with bricks and metal and heavily supervised and well ventilated and the ventilators on the ship the ones that went between the um decks on a lot of ships these would be made of wood but on the ocean monarch they were metal and the captain himself, so not just delegating to his crew or his mates, went from from deck to deck reminding passengers and crew of the importance of not smoking. You know, not smoking below decks, not making a fire to keep warm, um, it, you know, none of that. He was really, really careful about it. And he had good reason to be. Ships at the time, even though they're surrounded by water, they're absolute tinderboxes. You know, they had straw for making their beds with. And, you know, some people would make what was called a, a donkey's breakfast. And they would stuff, like, sacking to make a, a sort of mattress with it. Some people just slept on the straw which maybe meant it was easier to uh, dispose of soiled bedding if you had seasickness. And there was just straw everywhere and everything was wood or rope or material. So you're looking at this floating hazard. There were very strict rules in port regarding not having fires at all, even for cooking on the the ship. So in fairness to him, he really, really tried. And that's maybe why he'd survived as long as he did, being a captain of, of passenger ships. Right. So explain the accommodations, if you wouldn't mind. What classes of passengers were sleeping where in the ship? Basically, the the better off you were, the higher up the ship you were. So the fanciest of fancy people were effectively on the top deck. They had like a, a cabin there 
um, and then you'd go level by level. So the people that were lowest down, who had the least ventilation, the least light, the least space, and probably exposure to the most obnoxious smells, were the poorest. I would like to ask you about the origin of the fire, how it was discovered. You, you talked a bit about James Fellow's account of the fire. He told authorities that he had been the first to notice something amiss. He had been eating a meal when he smelled smoke, and he worked with a steward to alert the captain of the danger. Yeah, he he was brave and sensible. And what seems to have happened is the ship was in tow of the pilot vessels which was, you know, that was standard practice at the time, incredibly busy area for shipping, lots of hazards. And they got to just off the Welsh coast and the pilots detached. And as part of the kind of celebration, the captain had laid on this, you know, very fancy late breakfast. And this involved a lot of booze. And I do mean a lot. The the corks were popping apparently from champagne bottles. There was liquor. You know, it it was a feast, and it was like a really celebratory atmosphere. So after that, fellows and the other first class passengers, they were lounging about on sofas reading in the cabin. I just really just, it sounds like they were chilling out, they were digesting a heavy meal, and they were getting used to the sea, the movement of the sea. And that's when the smoke started to kind of wisp in, and fellows noticed it and raised the alarm. It had initially, well, for quite some time after even, it was blamed on pipe smoking passengers in steerage. It was seen very much as, well, you know, if you're going to have these these oiks on the ship, then, of course, they're going to be smoking and lighting fires and dooming the rest of us. And it simply wasn't the case. The captain had told somebody off for smoking, but they were not the, the architects of their own doom by any means. Then there was... The chap, um, Edward Jenkins, I think he was called, and he was one of the crew. And he was seen to be going below deck with a lighted candle and then came back without it. And somebody had said to him, well, you know, what? where's the candle? And he'd said, well, actually, I, I've, I've used it to waterproof. I think it was his shoes or his boots, but he'd, he'd used the wax to, to waterproof them. They didn't question any further. And they didn't go check. So a lot of people were remembering this interaction and blaming him. But what it seems, um, and obviously I wasn't there, I do not have a TARDIS or a time machine, unfortunately, but from the accounts that I've read and compared, it seems like when they're having this boozy breakfast and sending, like, cabin boys or whoever to go and get more booze 
one at least of the staff members have gone in to probably the lazarette. It's where dead bodies would be stored if necessary because it's like quite a kind of cool contained area and it's really dark inside so they'd gone in dripped some wax on top of some of the casks of like booze liquor spirits what have you set the candle upright in it while they've like looked for particular bottles because i think it was they were getting booze that was marked as well that's the captain's special stash um they got it they took it out and left the candle going and as the candles burnt down you know there would be fumes there would be you know the the kind of alcohol in the air there was probably all sorts of stuff you know just scraps of wood and wood shavings lying about and that's been a slow starter but then when it's actually reached out of the lazarette and into the air that was available it's just gone woof and just torn through the ship usually if there's a fire somewhere people die of smoke inhalation they die of lack of oxygen they die of the toxic gases that they're inhaling in this ship and in this case the fire was so hot and it burned so fast that actually a lot of people died because they were burnt i mean this is my first book to have effectively a a, a reader's advisory notice at the front um but people were burning to the extent that they had um a kind of human gravy going over the deck of the ship because it was literally cooking them where they stood. You know, the, the sheer heat coming up through the, the wooden deck for people like actually up in the fresh air on top deck, the heat was such that their feet were cooking. Their feet were sticking to the boards. Uh, you know, it was it was horrific. And there was absolutely no form of fire prevention or fire extinction. They had 12 little buckets. They had one pump that didn't work properly. And they were try- having to fill these little buckets and then throw water down. The, the sea's too far away to just be scooping it like you maybe would from a stream or a pond. And they couldn't even get to the fire. So the ship's carpenter, luckily, had been nearby like sawing things um, and had his tools. No idea what he was sawing, but he had his tools. So he was cutting through the decks so that they could try and get to the source of the fire. Um, and when he did, well, it was just like black smoke was just like belching out, blinding them, you know, stinging their eyes couldn't see so they were throwing their buckets of water down this little hole but it had absolutely no effect on it it just meant that they'd get like steam as well because the the air was now able to get to this fire and so then it it just 
oh, it just took over the ship. And you get different viewpoints from different people who survived because some people were in the area of ship where um, the wind was blowing the flames away from. Then you've got the fire and it's it's across half of the middle of the ship. So that's cutting people off from seeing what's happening on the other end. And the fire is blowing into that end. So people are, are, are dying and, and falling overboard and you know lots of them can't swim. And it's just horrendous. And in the middle of this, you've got the animals going berserk. You know, they're terrified and they're penned up. And it's just so nightmarish. And the, the lifeboats, they did have um, a couple of lifeboats, even though at the time, as with the William and Mary, as with the Taylor, you know, lifeboats were, were fought against. They were seen as, well, if you've got them, who's going to be taking care? And they tried to use them. They tried to get them down. But the fire was so fast and so powerful that it burnt half of them immediately and one of the other boats that went down it was it was the i think it's the midships boat it's it's the big you know the one that's comparatively long it's like 21 foot or something that went down but it went down so forcefully onto the waves that the bung in it the 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 kind of plug in the bottom popped out and was lost so one of the guys that got in had to take off his stockings and like wad them up and shove them into this hole because it was sinking so fast and they didn't have any oars so they had to get like some of the wood that was flowing floating past to try and get the the boat moving and it just sounds like it just sounds like hell it it sounds so 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 awful you know and and people who'd been in steerage people who were below deck when they'd been asking people you know when they'd heard there's a bit of a commotion and they'd seen people rushing past and they said well you know what's happening you know do, do we need to go up they were told no stay put just stay there everything's under control everything's fine don't worry yourselves which effectively condemns them to death you know and there was there was all this happening but there was still just incredible heroism shown from some people back in a moment say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, any where with daily bonuses that should brighten your day low actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus we have returned the captain was shouting orders but it was so chaotic on deck so much screaming crying by, by panicked passengers that that the captain couldn't be heard over the noise yeah, and and the cows were were mooing and the sheep were screaming and you know fire itself is noisy. If it's a hungry fire, if it's going fast, it is noisy. And he'd been breathing in the smoke, so you know it, his voice wasn't going to carry as much as it did as it should anyway. So he was trying his best to get everything sorted. The flames were right at him, so the only thing he could do was go overboard from that point. But to people who were watching, they thought he was abandoning ship before helping everybody, and that simply wasn't the case. And if I remember right, he went back on and to a different area, and he was still trying to get people safe. He was trying to get like the mast down so the people could use that he was trying to direct people to the right areas you know in the confusion somebody put up the wrong flag because there was obviously there was no radio at that point but they did communicate with other ships or onlookers using special flags you know still in use today and they'd put up the wrong flag so they had to kind of redo that because it was the middle of the day and there was people watching this beautiful ship going past and then seeing the smoke and hearing the screams and smelling the smells and being utterly unable to help. You, you talked about crewmen attempting to lower lifeboats into the water. Um, in one instance, when this was happening, a father threw his child into the boat and the crewmen who were trying to get it down, get it to stay afloat, threw the child right back up onto the deck. Yeah. And I can't even imagine that. I, I really can't. But yeah, the, there was lots and lots of children on board. And one of the most horrible things was that when parents were lowering themselves over the side, if they could, or being thrown over or whatever. They were tying their children around their waist, but then they wouldn't be able to keep the children's heads above water. If you've ever been like doggy paddling or something with um, you know, a full set of clothes on or a weight belt, or just because you know, you're tired and the water's rough, then you'll know how hard it is just to keep your own face above water. And they were trying to do it, keep themselves, like their whole chest area, above water. 
you know, this is people that, that can't swim, people who are unfamiliar with large bodies of water, who you know, may have been very seasick, may be completely fully dressed with you know, many, many layers of clothing on, heavy, restrictive clothing. And then they've got small children, like two, three, however many, tied around their waist. You know, there is absolutely no way that you can keep those little faces above the waves. <sighs> and then the weight of these drowned children were dragging people down. And some of them were just like, well, do you know what? You know, it, they seem to just give up, which is, again, completely understandable. Some of them needed help and other people would dive under to loosen the rope and let their babies float away just to kind of try and save that that person. And in amongst all this, you've got people who are thinking incredibly clearly and acting incredibly bravely. And one of them, you know, we don't even know her name. We think, or I think, her name might have been Elizabeth Cummings, but it could just as easily not have been. There there had been um, a £25 magazine of gunpowder kept below decks. And the thing with gunpowder is if it's in a very small enclosure, a small container, then the force is just enormous. Whereas if it's like spread out, you know, like you see in movies where like there's this thin line of powder leading to something ridiculous, then it just kind of sputs and fizzles and it, it doesn't cause much harm. And on board, there was some stewards and their wives, stewardesses, which was quite rare. And also... Um, what appears to be rare but probably wasn't but going off records from the time that I was able to find they were black and the one of the stewardesses suddenly was heard to be like screaming like she was screaming to God for help but also screaming you know about the powder and the magazine the magazine and so she went towards the fire she went down the stairs, through all that horrific smoke, absolutely no protection or anything. And she was joined by a passenger who himself was very, very brave and sounds really, really decent. And he'd run down with her and together they managed to get the magazine out of you know a tight compartment and into a larger area. And she managed to get back up to the deck and then collapsed and was dead. He managed to get back up and you know carry on doing heroic stuff um, and saving people's lives. And when the when the the fire did get to that gunpowder, it sounded like a cannon going off, but it didn't blow the ship apart, which it probably would have if you know, that incredibly brave stewardess and the passenger hadn't moved it. And she gave her life doing that. And 
nobody seems to know her name. There's barely a mention of her in the press of the time. And when she is mentioned, there's some like <laughs> snide remarks about her probably having been um, a sex worker too, um, which was, was, wasn't something that the newspapers at the time approved of. And it, the injustice of that is absolutely horrific. And I've, I, I tried my very best to try and, you know, recognize this woman, recognize her name. And I've really struggled. And if anybody has like oral history passed down in their family of like an aunt or a grandmother, whoever that this could have been, then please, please, please let me know because, you know, this this is an incredible hero, this woman. And, um, you know, the, the passenger, in fairness to him, when he was being celebrated and lauded in the papers, he was saying, well, it wasn't just me. You know, I, I only acted because she was acting. She's the, She's the one that's done this. She's the hero. And tried to have her acknowledged and it, it, it just oh it's so awful that they didn't yeah that's really unfortunate the man you were referring to his name was winston bristow yeah and he was pretty amazing he, he was one of the only people on board who really kept calm and cool yeah uh, he, he was pulling up benches and tossing them into the water as flotation devices. He was amazing. And there must be hundreds of people to, alive today, if not more, who wouldn't be here if it weren't for his actions. He, he sounds like he was an extremely decent, brave person. And this deeply affected him, you know, as it would, you know, but he really, really, really tried. You know, there was others involved in the wreck who didn't try, who turned away, or who, you know, in some cases went out in a little boat ostensibly to help, actually to to pilfer from whoever they pulled aboard and then abandon them again. This type of event really brings out the best and the worst in people. And, you know, in this case, the best was absolutely stellar. You, you write in your book that basically the choice was death by fire or death by water. And you had to make that decision quickly, uh, burn to a crisp on the boat or, or drown in the ocean. But to make things more confusing and frightening, um, the masts were burning. And like you said earlier, crashing onto the deck, crushing some and knocking others into the water yeah yeah it, it was terrifying and when they went down like that when they would it wouldn't just be the mass it would be the sails it'd be the rigging you know it'd be all that stuff and there wasn't anywhere to go when you were on deck it was so crowded and people were were really having to bunch together and then other people were like being knocked or pushed overboard and people were, were were driven berserk by the the trauma of it you know one woman 
before she jumped overboard, slit her throat with a cutthroat razor, just to kind of, I suppose, speed things up. Um, you know, some people were, were picking up women and chucking them overboard. Those women didn't have a say in it. Um, and people, in the end, were, were were kind of having to climb out onto the figurehead and hold on. And even then, you know, when the flames got too close, either they'd have to let go because they were burned or other people would kick them out of the way. It seems like the key to survival here, uh, jump into the ocean as far from the ship as, as you can, find something to hold on to, and hope that no one grabs onto you, right? Yes. There's so many reports of, of uh, people jumping in, trying to swim to somebody's aid, if they were able to swim. Uh, you know, spotting their wife or their daughter or their brother or whoever and trying to get to them and then being pulled under um, because people are that desperate and it, it, the the choices people had to make are are not ones I, I envy them at all. There was one account in your book where a man put his wife on a rope over the side of the ship and he was going to follow her down but when she got to the water, there were two women struggling who, without having anything to hold on to, just desperately grabbed at her dress. Yeah. And they ended up pulling her under with them. They all drowned. Yeah, yeah. And there was also, um, I think it was Fellows, the jeweler from America, the one who'd, who'd seen everything unfold, he said, "I think it was one of. I think it was the chief steward. He said, you know, he'd been like this, this, this really nice guy, really good guy, from his interactions with him, and that he'd been holding onto a rope against the edge of the ship for a couple of hours, and holding tight to it, but getting really tangled, and the movement of the waves, all the kind of debris in the water." Because the wood that's being thrown overboard by like the carpenter and Weston Bristol and people like that, yeah, it's 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 really useful to hold on to, but it's also effectively like missiles. You know, it's it's hitting people, it's crushing people, especially if they're next to the ship. It it would absolutely pulverize you. And he watched this man you know, he was meeting his eyes and he just watched this man and was absolutely helpless to do anything while this poor guy, the waves keep crashing over his head, he keeps being thumped against this this ship. Um, in the end, he managed to free himself and swam a couple of feet to this cask that was that was floating. But because of the shape of the cask he would keep trying to get on top of it just to give himself a bit of a break and it just kept rolling and rolling and rolling until in the end he just didn't come up again and that just sounds like you know it's, it's the stuff of nightmares it really is and he's thumping against the ship um a ship that's so hot that the pitch 
that had been applied to keep it watertight was dripping and melting, right? Yeah. It, so that was, you know, yet another hazard that that, that you know, you're getting these hot blob, blobs of, of goo, of tar and pitch, like landing on people. And people are on fire at this point. You know, people are, it's not just like, oh, a bit of hair, you know, like if you've gone too close to the stove when you're making popcorn or whatever. It's, they are badly burnt. They are in shock. And the, the, the things that these people went through and the selflessness of some people as well. There was, there was an, um, well, he's described as an old man. He is probably about 70 or so. And he had these these children, like little, little children, nothing to do with him. But he's got them all, he's holding on to them all. And then he's it, like got them around his, his tummy and he's holding on to the figurehead. And he just absolutely, you know, a rock of a man holds on and holds on and holds on. And the fire is actually at him and he is letting his hands burn rather than let go of those children, rather than drop into the sea and maybe survive himself. And in the end, when another very notable character, Frederick Jerome, swam over buck naked to take people off the figurehead and into um, a, a boat below to rescue them, they had to basically chip him off and it it's not something that you ever expect to encounter when you're like you know reading old newspapers or whatever but newspapers at the time you know they didn't really have a filter except to protect the the rich and powerful aside from that anything went so i i i really do applaud that man yes yes um First mate Bragdon, mm. he would become a controversial figure, right? Yeah, and again, it's it's people not understanding the full picture. And in fairness, you know, uh, you're not exactly stopping and asking people their reasons um, in the middle of all this. To some people, it looked like the first mate had gone overboard with one of the lifeboats and taken it and just gone and abandoned them. What actually happened was, yeah, he did that. However, there was no oars. He was using bits of wood. He got to the nearest approaching vessel because other boats and ships who had seen what was happening were doing their best to get there and to help when they could, when they had the, the fuel, etc. And he got to a pilot boat and was like, right, okay, everybody off, everybody into there, get safe. And then he was like, right, so I need some oars, got some oars off the pilots. And he was like, right, who is going to come with me to try and help get more people off? And a couple of crew who he'd rescued, who he'd taken away from the ship, volunteered and went back with him and he went back and he was helping other people he was 
getting people off off the the ropes, off the bits of wood, pulling them from the water. You know, he he exhausted himself doing what he could, but doing it in a practical um, fashion. It's maybe that kind of practical, level-headed nature that meant he got to be first mate in the first place. He he's thought about things. He's done what he can, and been successful as a result. But but at the time, people who'd seen him go and then had had to witness their loved ones turning into candles, basically, they had absolute devastation and it makes complete sense that yeah they would be angry with him they would be angry with captain but they really did do their best and you know a a starker contrast between ships the william and mary and the ocean monarch you know you're you're not going to find we will return momentarily Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And the interview continues. So, so as you said, ships start coming to the rescue. What will some did and some didn't, correct? Yeah. I mean, it is such a busy area. I mean, it's still a busy area now, but it was incredibly busy at the time. And um, there was Brazilian and French royalty having basically pleasure cruises, test runs of of warships and things like that um in the area there was people coming back from like yachting regatta there was a ship that did a regular run between i think it was bangor and liverpool and some of the ships they later it, the captains would later explain it as well i was really you know they were totally full there was no room for anyone extra and also they didn't have the fuel to have any kind of detour or any kind of delay so they prioritized okay well rather than risk everybody's well-being we'll take care of who we've got here and now because any ship that went close to the ocean monarch while it was ablaze they were uh, at risk of being hauled from the debris from stuff, you know, just washing against the side of the airship and punching holes in it. And they were also at massive risk of catching fire themselves. And either of those would have been death. So I dare say if I was a passenger on the ships that didn't go to their aid, I would perhaps have been grateful to not have been at that additional risk. But I know from accounts that were left that there was a a lot of passengers who were demanding that they go to the rescue and were ignored. There were also passengers who were demanding that they leave them be. So 
yeah, but if what's done was done. But a lot of people put themselves at considerable risk to help. Uh, and that actually included some uh, French princes who were in exile. And it wasn't just that they were kind of <laughs> directing the rescue effort or saying, oh, you know, can we go closer? We want a better look or whatever. They were physically helping. They were pulling people from the water. They were looking after them. Their their families were looking after the the kids that were being brought aboard. It it's something that they did what they could in and more than a lot of people in their situation would have done. Some of the rescued passengers had the misfortune of being dropped off on a pilot ship called Pilot Queen of Chester. Yeah. And the crew members on the ship did not welcome them with open arms. Yeah. I mean, these guys, these guys were extremely rough and ready, is perhaps the kindest term. They were professional pilots, and that's what their families had done you know, for generations before them. So they would go out off the, the Welsh coast and guide vessels that were coming into Liverpool or coming out. Very proficient seamen and excellent at what they did. But when the first mate dropped off passengers with them, they then basically... I don't know. I don't know how to put it kindly, but basically they they took what they could get from these people and they were pretty harsh with them. And then these people were were traumatized, they were, you know, probably smoke inhalation, possibly burnt, sh- state of shock and soaked to the skin. And even in August, if you're in the sea, and it was quite choppy at the time. It wasn't like a hot sunny day. If you're out in the middle of the sea off the Welsh coast, you're going to be cold. There's no ifs, ands or buts. You're going to be really cold. So they stripped off where they could. But if they wanted to use a blanket, and I don't mean like a lovely silky duvet or something. or I mean, it would be manky and grotty and ugh, then um, you had to pay them a large sum of money or agree to later pay them a large sum of money. Um, in the end they they thought that they heard these pilots um, discussing potentially chucking them overboard because um, they'd got what they wanted, they got the money off them other boats, other little lifeboats had come as well. So they're like, no, we're going to take one of those boats, we're going to go. Um, one of the people stayed put because they were just absolutely unconscious. They were they were really, really doing poorly. And so they had to leave him because it sounds like they, you know, they got off this pilot boat by the skin of their teeth and into one of the ship's little boats. And then nobody could find what happened to this guy. So in the end, you know, the, the, there was so much dodginess. It was just layer upon layer. It was like a, a lasagna of dodginess. They, in the aftermath, 
the pilots got put on trial for murder for 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 killing this this vanished passenger for for robbing people and all that but but it was a death sentence for for murder and they were saying oh no no absolutely not you know honest gov it wasn't us um there was another boat that passed by and it was going straight to liverpool it would have been fast so we would just put them on board there um but nobody could track down like anybody that could corroborate this or the chap who had had gone and it's looking pretty dicey for them you know and and people were 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 full of of bile towards these guys for i suppose being so dishonorable um you know, it wasn't up to the standards and mythology of the time but then at the last minute into the courtroom walks the passenger yeah yeah he he had been put onto another boat and he said they'd actually been quite generous towards him the pilots and when he got to liverpool he just went straight home but home was away from liverpool it was far away and they you know the the, the news wasn't linked up the way that it is now you know now if 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 someone burps in london it's heard in india then it was well it would be weeks and weeks if not more for for news to filter from place to place so when he'd heard oh by the way you've been murdered <laughs> there's people <laughs> facing the death penalty for it and actually they helped you you know he's gone there as quick as he could <laughs> and, and literally walked in like risen from the grave <laughs> to say you know no actually hi i'm not dead <laughs> but if he'd been that bit later if he'd been too ill or too poor to make that journey back if he had actually died if he hadn't been wanting to to make that effort to go and intervene then they would be dead they'd have been hanged or you know if they were lucky maybe transported um <laughs> which was as good as a death sentence but um yeah so uh, that that was quite something <laughs> to to research um and and to find that bit I was like, oh my god that's like something from a film yeah so the loss of the ocean monarch uh the, the ship itself because it was american um, British authorities left that to the United States to deal with. But there were many, many inquests for the victims whose bodies had been recovered from both the ocean and the shore. Yeah. Who conducted the inquests and what were they for? It was, um, it was local folk who would handle the inquests. And because... The, the ocean monarch sank you know really close to land it was really close to um i will attempt the welsh version uh Clandidno. because it was so close to there and the currents and everything it meant there was there was bodies washing up um anglesey isle of man you know right up along the the north wales coast and the western english coast and you know, bodies were also being fished out 
just by people on the ferry and what have you. And there was just so many because the death count had been so huge. You know, hundreds died. So all these people washing up and, you know, some of them washed up maybe a year later and it would be because, like, papers or whatever were were tucked into their waistband that it would be made sense of, of, oh, right, that's from this particular wreck because this was a time when wrecks were so, so, so common, three or four a day at least, and that's just around the British Isles. So pinning down where a body came from was sometimes impossible. A lot of the bodies were identified at the time and some of the ones that weren't identified at the time, the newspapers included enough detail that that I've been able to tentatively identify a further half dozen of them. I mean, when I look at my book, it's it's about, I don't know, three quarters narrative of the events, but then the rest of it is appendices, including like all the names that were given, because there's about a hundred extra names. Then there's also all the details of graves, of mass graves, of individual graves, of memorials. And then there's also all the information from the newspapers because the newspapers, they knew that things would be identified from pockets, from clothing, from appearances, and that those would be noticeable to people's families, people's friends or or school teachers or whoever who would be absolutely, you know, pouring over the newspapers or getting their local minister or priest to pour over these written statements that included exactly like had they got a scar on them, what was in their pockets, what was in their tucked into their corset, what was tucked into their watch. And just as as somebody who's interested in history, just seeing the the contents of this kind of microcosm of that time. You know, you've got a mixture of Americans, British, Irish, mixture of classes, mixture of professions, mixture of backgrounds, and and seeing well what was actually in their pockets when they were setting off for America. What was important to them? What what did they keep handy? What did um, what reminded them of home? All that, and from that, being able to then go, okay, well, they had these initials embroidered inside their underskirt. Okay, well, who on the who would match that from the the list? Um, and so some of the bodies that washed up, it was just, it was just so grim. Was so horrible and that's why there's the content warning at the beginning you know it's safe to read the book I, I wrote it so it's it's safe to read it grisly sad but safe but there's a couple of pages that I've noted that if if you've got qualms about that sort of thing you can skip them and it will still all make sense but you're maybe avoiding some nightmares it's pretty horrific yeah. So so in the aftermath of the disaster, 
there were medals awarded, uh, money was raised and, and distributed to the victims. Do you think they were passed out fairly or? No. Oh. No. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> it, it seemed really hit and miss. Um, I don't begrudge any of the people who got honoured or acknowledged or rewarded. I do not begrudge them that one bit. But there's so many people who who lost everything, who lost everything in terms of material possessions, financial possessions, loved ones, maybe even their livelihood, depending on how badly they were injured, and the possibility of a, a fresh start elsewhere, who they've lost everything and nobody seemed to really care. You know, and uh, if they managed to get back to wherever they'd started from, if they came from like Britain or Ireland in the first place, maybe there was local things happening. Maybe there was things that supported them. Um, I know that that like, and I I mean this is so uh, this is so rural English. I can't even believe it, but there'd be little boats carved out of the the shipwreck timbers that washed up and sold it I think it was a school fit to make money for the victims and it's just <laughs> okay those are obviously not going to be haunted um, <laughs> they're never going to turn up somewhere unexpected um, <laughs> but that, that that was a thing to try and help and with the William and Mary, I was principally furious and disgusted by the captain. With the Ocean Monarch, I'm principally furious and disgusted with with the society that meant that a hero who lost her life, you know, saving hundreds of others, just got kind of sneered at in the press if mentioned at all. Right. So were there any new laws passed after this? Did, did safety measures increase on these ships? Um, if they were, it was pretty trivial. I mean, there were laws in place and in theory, the candles left burning on casks of spirits below deck should not have happened according to those rules. So it, it's more about the the implementation of rules rather than the creation of them. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to us now, and it probably seemed pretty obvious to the people that survived, you need a better system for putting out fires on ships. You need a better system for uh, evacuating people uh, from a death trap you need a better alarm system you need to not be saying to people stay put stay put stay put when actually they'd do better up in the fresh air on deck and you'd do better just having some kind of alarm that means other ships race to get to you rather than somebody messing up which flag you put on 
that that's basically kind of going, no, it's all right, we're okay, rather than help. And a lot of it does seem really obvious to us, but you know, like I said with the William and Mary, any kind of health and safety rule, any kind of change whatsoever has a significant body count behind it. And this one doesn't seem to have had enough. It's interesting. When, when I think of a shipwreck, I, I always think of a ship being uh, wrecked on a rock or a, or a glacier. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not limited to that, but... I completely agree with you. That's exactly how I think of them. Um, this ship, it burnt until one in the morning and it burnt right down to the waterline and then it just kind of fizzled and went under and when people have been to the wreck since um, it's it's quite a popular diving spot I believe then you can see that it, it has been literally uh, it's like a clean line it's like um, it's like somebody's cut it at the waterline so it's, it, yeah, you would hope this wouldn't happen again now. But I, it, yeah, never say never. That, that's true, yeah. Well, I, I've really enjoyed this. So how can people find you, connect with you? Um, well, I tend to be on Twitter. And it's just my name. G-I-L-L-H-O-F-F-S but there's also my publisher's website that's Pen and Sword as in the pen is mightier than the sword um, and they do all sorts of history books including things like the history of vampires in popular culture <laughs> so if you're into oddities of history as well as more general topics like military history there's plenty to find there and that includes all my books. Well, well, thank you for taking some time to share this story with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast last time, and it was really, really nice to talk to you again. Again, I have been speaking to Jill Hoffs. She is the author of The Lost Story of the Ocean Monarch, Fire Family infidelity. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.